Well, good morning. It has been a privilege to experience several mission trips and actually one of the most successful types of evangelism my wife and I have been involved with was an evangelistic series with the Nedley family and several other families here in Vail, Colorado, <clears throat> believe it or not. So, and also a really good experience for all of our families involved. And so that's been indeed um, a blessing. Um, when Mark asked me to, you know, I've, I've shared here a couple times that usually it's been just giving a uh, progress note. It's a lot easier to get up and talk about praying with your patients or talking about a mission trip. This time Mark said, I want you to give your personal testimony, your experience, your conversion experience while you were a student at Loma Linda. And you know, it's um, sometimes I've gone to bed crying that my experience is not as straight and smooth as somebody like um, Dr. Chung last night where he was faithfully blessed from a young age as he matured and developed and the Lord has just immensely blessed him. I cried myself to sleep that that wasn't the case, that I had a much harder experience. And so as I begin to share that a little bit, I just pray that you would pray for me as I share that. It can be sometimes painful and I don't like to talk about that very often. But let's bow our heads just for a moment. Well, our Father in heaven, I just thank you for each person here today who has chosen to come to fellowship together with like-minded physicians and dentists and medical missionaries to learn how to restore the right arm of the gospel to a dying world that is longing to see a message of a Savior that wants to heal them and to restore them. So on the Sabbath day especially, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will be here. Speak through me. May each one be blessed. But maybe especially there's someone here who's struggled to know you. Struggled because of the home they grew up in that misrepresented your character, the school they went to that didn't truly believe the Adventist message, professors that taught them things about evolution instead of creation, things that undermined our faith growing up so that we've been wandering in the wilderness looking for you. Father, as a result of this testimony, may we realize that you have been searching for us until you find us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many uh, parents out here have strong-willed children? Can I see your hands? That's exactly what I thought I was going to see. I don't really believe it. You are, most of you are parents who just have children with a will. They don't do exactly what you want them to do right when you tell them to do it. That's, that's a will. We all have one. I'm talking about strong-willed children. <laughs> and let me explain. I truly believe <laughs> um, it was just like a light bulb went off when somebody finally described the type of personality that I grew up with. And it's not necessarily a blessing, <clears throat> but a strong-willed child. I, probably the first sentence that I said is, I will do it myself. And the next sentence I probably said is, you can't make me. 
in having a strong-willed mother, thus created quite a battle in my childhood because she was determined to, if not mold my will, break my will, but she was going to be in charge and she miscalculated one thing. Um, <laughs> so, a strong-willed child, once they make up their mind, short of killing them, you're not going to change it. <laughs> and my mother, I'm sure, on many occasions felt like doing that, but felt restrained from going the final step. <laughs> so, let me give you just a few examples. And I had a, a caring mother, a godly mother, who instilled in me from the very earliest years um, Bible stories and principles, but at the same time, you get a picture of God from your parents, from those around you, and in my case, it wasn't a completely picture of a loving God, but a God that I had to, I better do it his way or else, a very conditional God, and that picture lasted me for many, many years until I heard a more powerful gospel, but um, it just something snaps in me any time that somebody, especially my mom, would tell me to do something, even if I wanted to do it. But my mother being busy, um, she uh, originally had a foster care home. Um, this isn't the politically correct way to say it anymore, but I literally grew up in a foster home for mentally retarded children. I've done pretty well for myself, I might say. But... <laughs> My parents ran a foster care home with four uh, developmentally disabled children, very low functioning. She was constantly busy with that, overwhelmed, <clears throat> overworked, and very little time to try to put it in terms that I would appeal to, to encourage me to take out the trash. So when she just said, Brian, take out the trash, I just had to say, no. <clears throat> I sometimes would go back to my room wishing that I didn't have to do that, but I couldn't do anything different. Um, she would get so frustrated with me that she would say, I am your mom, and what I say goes, and if I tell you that wall is black, it's black. And I'd look at her and say, it doesn't matter what you say that wall is, it's still white. It was, boom, head on all the time. Now, my father... Um, not because he was psychologically aware, but just because of his basic pessimistic nature. Always liked to, to say if something was going wrong, that, oh, just forget it. It can't be done. It can't be done. Just leave it. It can't be done. Well, that had the opposite effect on me. If he said something couldn't be done, then I had to do it. <laughs> My father, having grown up in Germany and then coming to New York, um, Growing up in the city of New York wasn't the least bit mechanical. He didn't know one end of a screwdriver from another. He'd never really driven in snow, and my mom managed to drag him off to a little farm up in northern Michigan with lots of snow probably 11 months out of the year. He used to get stuck in the ditch driving to or from work at least three or four times a week, if not on a daily basis. It's that final one and a half miles up the dirt road to our house that was not plowed in the winter that he had trouble with. The paved road was fine, but invariably the car was stuck in the ditch a half a mile, a mile from home. And at the age of 10, 11, or 12, he'd come walking in the last half mile and 
say, oh, it's stuck, it's really bad. And I say, oh, where is it? He goes, oh, don't even try it, you can't get it out. <laughs> and I'd go out there with a jack and some boards and a shovel and I'd probably move tons and tons of snow, but eventually at the age of 11 or 12, I got to drive the car home and I um, always got it out. <laughs> One time my parents wanted to change the carpet in our living room where we had this grand piano. Now this isn't like your usual grand piano. This was an old-fashioned player piano. It had this huge iron undercarriage underneath with all these tubes and pipes running all through it. And it weighed a ton. I was 11 years or 12 years old. I could not possibly lift one corner of it by grabbing it and lifting it. And um, it needed to be moved before the carpet people would come lay the carpet. And I talked to my dad and said, well, let's try to move it. And he's like, oh, no, there's no way we'll be able to move that. <laughs> well, now I had a project for the day. By the time he came home that evening, the piano had been moved to the living room. Uh, out of the living room to the dining room and so that they could lay the carpet. And he came in and took note of that and was pretty impressed. I had decided that, well, <laughs> there's more than one way to skin a cat. I'm going to move that piano. And I had gone out to the barn, got my trusty jacks, some bunch of blocks, jacked it up, took the legs off of it, lowered it down to the ground, tilted it up onto the piano dolly and pushed it out in the living room or the dining room. I don't know how long that took me, but by the time he got home, the piano had been moved. So what I am telling you is that I could be pretty determined. You could not short of, if you had threatened to burn the house down, um, in order to get me to do something you wanted, you would have burned the house down around me because if I had made up my mind, I wouldn't have left the house. Um, at one point, my mother said, you are not going to eat until you apologize, and I started missing my meals. Now, I really wasn't as bad as all this sounds, I put myself to good use during that time. While my family was eating meals, I was in studying the spirit of prophecy. <laughs> in about the second or third meal, I found a quote that said that you should not use food as a means of discipline, and I brought that in <laughs> during supper and set that down in front of my mother, and I, at that point, got to eat supper. And uh, unfortunately, young people, any of you who are in that position, I cannot remember that quote. You'll have to find it for yourself. But, <laughs> but it is in there if you look hard enough. Um, the point of this is I was pretty determined from a very young age. You couldn't make me do anything that you couldn't entice me to do. Now, I actually wasn't in trouble in school. I was never in trouble in school. I can't remember ever being disciplined in school. There's some of you that went to school with me that might think otherwise, but um, I felt respected in school. And the biggest thing with dealing with a strong-willed child is to let them is to realize you cannot completely crush their will. You need to try to entice them to make choices and realize that life is about making good choices and bad choices. And where I felt respected, if uh, my grandmother would say, Brian, would you please take out the trash? I just would die to go take out the trash. I would wish that my mother would just please ask me to take out the trash. Please acknowledge that I even had a choice in the matter and don't just pretend that I'm a little robot that just does exactly what she says. And unfortunately, we battle that and we battle. And somehow, they never even had this problem at all with my brother and sister. That's, they, they could get away with murder, but it was a totally different world by then. 
I was looking for um, respect. But that was the discipline that I grew up with. If I set my mind to do something, you weren't about to change it. Um, but I also alluded to the fact that I started growing up with a feeling that that's how God treated me as well. It's either I do it exactly his way or he's going to squash me in the end. And that's really not the way that a strong-willed child gets motivated. You can burn me with fire. It's not going to change my mind. Um, teen years were kind of difficult. We have just pretty much lived in the same house but um, didn't talk to each other for years, and they just kind of tolerated me till I was old enough to get out of the house and be gone and, and live my own life. I went off to academy at the age of 17. And actually, by the time I went to academy and I was in a different environment, I had made a decision that I wanted to become um, a spiritual person and to really my goal was to become perfect. I knew... Um, I knew that the judgment was going on, and many nights I would lay awake having nightmares about the judgment, and at any time that God might be passing past my name. I used to be terrorized by that thought. I um, knew that in order to be fit for heaven, we had to have a perfect character. And so I went off to academy determined that this is going to be the year that I really turn things around. Um, don't have my mom telling me what to do. <laughs> Um, it's in a respectful environment, and I did. I started studying my Bible. I became one of the Sabbath school teachers at Academy. Um, and try as hard as I could, I realized that deep inside of me, I did not have the willpower to do what it took to reach the goal that I had established for myself. And I became somewhat disillusioned with my ability. I would look at people like, John last night and think, wow, he's a very spiritual person. I wish I could be like that. But you know what? I don't have what it takes. I, salvation is for other people. It can't possibly be for me because I have tried. I've given it everything I can. I just keep butting up against my hard heart, and there's no nothing that's going to get through. I cannot control my, my thoughts and my heart. Something else happened in academy. I found out that there were teachers who professed to be Adventists who would invite me over to watch R-rated movies. I'd never seen a movie in my life until I went to academy. Found out that, you know what, they kind of do some of these things because they have to, but they don't really believe it. Some of them didn't believe in the spirit of prophecy. I started realizing, you know what, there's a lot of Adventists out there. They're just living a life and don't really believe any of this. And there's many Adventists that don't even really believe that Jesus is coming back anymore. Um, so I got kind of caught up in different things. My senior year, went off to college. Um, first year at Andrews, I was again involved with Sabbath school and trying to have a devotional life and just trying to do what I could to to do what I thought was right and muster up my willpower to, to be as good and righteous as I could possibly be. I wasn't trying to rebel against God. I just found that I did not have it within my heart to do what I thought he was calling me to be. And by my second year, I pretty much had quit going to church, quit going to Sabbath school. I kind of stopped reading my Bible. I became just discouraged. I didn't get... There were teachers there that didn't believe in creation. There were teachers there that 
in my Bible classes that were even drier than the hills of Gilboa in their classes that just did not um, give me something that I was longing for, a power to change my own life, because I could see what was within my heart. I knew that at the bottom root of a, of a strong-willed child, it's really just a selfish heart. And I had the feeling that I was far more wicked and far more tortured inside than probably any of these other good Christian people, and therefore it was hopeless for me. Well, by my third year, there's only one thing I still wanted out of Adventism, and that was my acceptance to Loma Linda, um, which I got in December. And when I got my acceptance to Loma Linda, I wrote my parents and said, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist anymore. Please take my name off the books. They were, already, they were kind of worried that I was going to go out to Loma Linda to this liberal Southern California and get corrupted by that anyhow, but that happened long before back in Michigan. And I had given up in discouragement. I still believe there was a God. I still believe that Seventh-day Adventist Church was based on the Bible and that most of these principles were true. But I found no power to make any change in my life that could, could help me to, to live in that direction that I thought was important and that God required, and therefore I did not feel that I could be accepted with God. Well, my first year at Loma Linda, um, still a vegetarian, that made sense. I wasn't out running around with women, that was scary. <laughs> Some things that made sense I, I still adhered to, but I didn't keep the Sabbath. I may be in Las Vegas or usually just down at the beach. Um, just kind of doing my own thing. But it left me feeling empty that there had to be something more. Um, I didn't have a prayer life. I didn't read my Bible anymore. Um, I certainly wasn't well-to-do. Um, my sweet mate came from a very wealthy family. He was a student and drove a Lincoln Continental, brand new, had money you couldn't believe, was out partying on weekends and all the time, and I knew that his life was empty. I knew that didn't bring satisfaction. And it just seemed like all I could do was live for the moment. I became more of a thrill seeker going kind of got into rock climbing and just anything dangerous that gave me a thrill was just what I was looking for. But it left me feeling empty. By the end of my first year at La Melinda, I can still remember it as vividly as it happened then. At about 2 o'clock in the morning, I was lying in my bed. This would have probably been right toward the, right about May, just before the classes got out, a week or two before classes got out. I was awoken in my sleep with a dream that was more vivid than any dream that I have ever had in my life. And so I have called it a vision that the Lord sent to me to wake me up. As I woke up, I sat up beside the side of my bed. I was sitting bolt up. I was looking up, and this dream continued to vividly unfold before me. I could see Jesus coming in the clouds, coming back, and people around me were raising their hands and saying, praise the Lord, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And as I was there, I tried to raise my hand, but I couldn't raise my hand. I tried to say, praise the Lord, and I couldn't say, praise the Lord. And right there, just in that flash of a second, I, my heart was pounding. I was sweaty. I was sitting bolt upright, wide awake, seeing this little vision flash before my eyes. And so right then and there, I knew that I was lost, that I was running from God. And I knelt down beside my bed right at that moment, and I prayed a prayer. I said, Lord, 
I know I've been running away from you. I want to do what's right. I want to follow you. I'm going to start reading my Bible, but I am not going to become a Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> you can laugh now. Here I am. So I um, started studying my Bible. In fact, I started reading the story of redemption. And um, that summer, I um, was at home. I became rebaptized. Um, but before I did that, I started studying with everybody I could study with. I looked into Hinduism, Buddhism. I studied with some friends who were Mormons. Um, I looked at various things, and um, little by little, I realized that there wasn't any truth in those things. For a few weeks after, before the classes were out, I started going to a Bible study group with some classmates that were in my class. Back then, about a third of the class at Loma Linda were non-Aventists, but most of them were good Christian kids. Um, there were a few Seventh-day Adventists that I looked up to and thought, those are people that really actually believe this, and they're making it work. Several of them are here. Um, Mark, who asked me to do this, was one of them. Kelly uh, Kinsley, I actually went to in my class, and we were acquaintances, but not that good of, not really great friends, just acquaintances. We'd worked together a little bit a summer before doing some research. But I went to Kelly and I said, Kelly, I need you to be my friend. And he has been one of the best friends I've ever had since that day. I needed somebody to mentor me, to encourage me. I'd go to this Bible study class or Bible, uh, Bible study together with my non-Aventist classmates. Um, charismatic evangelicals mostly, Nazarenes, um, who would get together on Wednesday nights. They seemed to have a good time studying God's word. They weren't very deep. They didn't know the doctrines. I could run circles around them with Bible study. I knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but I realized that they had something that I had never had. They seemed to actually feel like Jesus loved them and that they loved Jesus. They had a joy in their experience that I had never experienced. And I wanted that, but I didn't think they could give it to me because they clearly didn't understand the doctrines. And so it didn't take very long, little by little. Um, and started, as I studied, to begin to realize that, nope, these Bible truths that I was taught are correct. Um, this is the truth for these last days. And uh, I needed to respond to that. And so I, said, I already said I was rebaptized. Actually, Dwight Nelson came out and had a week of prayer. And during that time, I, he had a show of hands on Thursday night how many people wanted to be recommitted to Christ. And I opened my eyes during that. I was sitting in the back row. And I was amazed that there were more than 100 hands of students that I thought were probably all hopeless. And um, I knocked on his door, 11 o'clock that night. I just felt very impressed. I couldn't sleep. Um, he was staying in the Daniels Hall, the same place where my, my apartment was. And I knew which place he was staying. I went down and I woke him up at about 11.20 at night. He came to the door in his bathrobe and said, uh, can I help you? And I said, well, yeah, I'm just a medical student. You know, I kind of just looked at the appeal you made, and there were over 100 students that raised their hand, and I couldn't sleep tonight. 
thinking about what's going to happen when you leave and all those students who made a commitment are just going to all go their separate ways and nothing's going to happen. And he goes, well, praise the Lord that you're here. I was praying about that very thing tonight. He approached one of the pastors. They didn't really seem interested in doing anything, and he didn't know what to do. So he said, look, if you get some paper and some pens together, I will invite everybody to come forward and out of that group. We got over 100 people signed up and started seven or eight separate Bible study groups on campus. Um, that led to a student church and led to other things on the campus at that time back in the um, 1980s. But I still didn't have that joy in my experience. I had that commitment. I knew that the doctrines were true. I saw this as being correct. Along with my friend Don, we used to start going to different meetings, um, different places off campus and on campus. Um, there were hundreds of places <laughs> that we would go, it seems like, trying to find something that made sense. And so my whole second year was spent. I was off uh, in reinterpretation of Daniel and Revelation, trying to make it apply to our modern day, to the, to the Soviet Union at that time, and to when communism was going to fall, and that there was going to be an earthquake in Loma Linda, and I almost dropped out of medical school because of that prophecy. <laughs> I finally came to the conclusion that if God can protect me, he can protect me even in an earthquake, and I stayed. But I actually went and talked to the dean before making that decision. I was convinced the end of the world was coming soon. I probably ought to just drop out on that basis because I was never going to get to finish medical school. Um, I went and heard people from, I won't go into the names, but all different walks of life. One of the guys that came to my Bible study group said, hey, you've got to come hear this guy over in San Bernardino. He's got a rock band and he's a prophet. He's a modern-day prophet. Um, I didn't go to that because I didn't believe that it modern-day prophet would have a rock band, a Christian rock band. Unfortunately, that saved me from one bad experience because the next time I saw my friend um, was a couple years later on television that the day that the Waco complex was burning down in, in Texas. He had just gotten out just a few days before that complex burned down, and I was invited to go to that. Um, I was searching. We went to this group, the Lord Our Righteousness group, where people, it made sense. It, basically, they had the belief that, you know, if you have perfect faith, then you shouldn't sin. And um, the guy that got up front and started preaching um, talked about how he hadn't sinned in over three or four years. The only problem with that is I had heard how he was talking to his wife on the way in, and the fact that he weighed about 350 pounds, and I just realized, <laughs> sorry just realized that that wasn't the way to go. But I was struggling, searching, and I started praying. I said, Lord, there has got to be something more. I can't keep doing this. I do not have enough willpower. And I was starting to feel the same struggles that I felt when I was in academy and when I had left in college and I was feeling like I'm going to do this again. I cannot do this. Salvation is for all those good people. All those people that don't have the self-centered heart like I have, is there any hope? And so I was on call that weekend, but my friend um, Don, the guy that my best friend who had been going to a lot of these different things, also looking for truth, um, heard of a little group meeting up at Camp Cedar Falls up in the mountains. Um, it was called the 1888 Western Regional Camp Meeting, and he went up to a conference and called me from there was something that I had never heard a day in my life. 
he just mentioned something that snapped like a light bulb in my brain that that was the power that I'd been looking for. John mentioned this last night, but I went up the next day and I heard a message about the cross of Christ that somehow in my experience I had never, ever heard before. That God loves us with this love called agape that has the power to change our lives and give us power that we lack. Let me just look at a few. Let me just recap what John went over last night. John read a quote from Desire of Ages, page 753. Upon Christ as our substitute and our surety was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted as a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasures because of iniquity filled the soul of the son with consternation. All his life he had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the father's mercy in pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme, but now with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. You know the story. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus was hanging on the cross. And the priests and the rulers, they came up and they mocked him. They said, if he's the son of God, let him save himself. He was the son of God. He could have saved himself. The soldiers came up and said, let him save himself if he is the son of God. In an instant, he could have grabbed hold of his own divinity and in a flash of light, they would have been dead. But one of the sinners beside him on the crosses, the thief on the cross said, Lord, save yourself and us. He could have saved himself, but he couldn't save himself and us. And so although this weight of sin felt so offensive to him that he could no longer sense the presence of his father and something that he had never counted on before in leading up to this day, he began to feel that he wasn't coming out of this alive. He was willing to die eternally, to never exist again so that you and I could live That was the power that grabbed my heart. When I realized that the God of the universe who made me loves me more than he loves himself, that was a transformational power. That somehow, growing up in an Adventist home, 
going to Adventist schools, going to an Adventist academy in college, I had never heard before. There are still many Adventists who don't know how good the good news really is. That God loves us more than he loves himself. And that began a study, a transformation that has never been the same before. I truly began to realize that, you know what? I had been running for God, from God, but God was pursuing me like the hound of heaven. He had never given up on me. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. When we realize, when I realized, I had no trouble understanding the depth of the hardness of my heart. I had struggled with that all my life. There are good traits about being strong-willed, but you realize how selfish your heart really is. And at the very heart of a selfish heart is the desire to even kill God if that's what it takes for me to be number one. And I had just been encountered by a principle that is the exact opposite of that. It is the only solution, only solution to a strong-willed child, to a hard heart. That brings forth repentance. It brings forth the realization that what he did was what I deserve. It's one thing to teach your child how to say I'm sorry. We've seen many adults when they've done something say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I apologize. But repentance is far deeper experience than to just say I'm sorry. It is to grieve, to understand the depth of what I have done and how that has affected you. And when I can come up and truly say, it grieves my heart to realize the pain that I've caused you. I don't ever want to do it again. It changes me. It transforms me. It humbles me. It changes my life, and it usually breaks down the barrier to whoever you are repenting to. Repentance is a blessing that if we as a church understood, it would humble our hard hearts and open up us to understand and be prepared to understand the faith of Jesus and the love that God has. I have come to realize these principles of God's agape and this truths of a message that was given over 100 years ago to really be summarized in the, the understanding of the faith of Jesus. And I am blessed to see those principles coming out in the, in the meetings that we've had so far. To be able to look at our patients the way that God sees them. I see a hardened man who has turned his back on God. I see someone who's thrown away their whole life. Derelict, why should I waste my time on them? But that's not how God saw me. And that's not how God sees them. God's, God has the ability to create what he sees. The only thing standing in the way is our hard hearts of unbelief. 
When I can look at my patient and I can see a picture for what he can become and I can inspire him to realize that he can be far more, that begins to have a creative effect right then and there. And so the work of healing and the work of salvation are the very same works, and that's why they need to be united. Well, I'm not the only strong-willed child. God has had many strong-willed people. Turn back to Deuteronomy 9. And you will all agree that this group of people hits the definition of strong will. Deuteronomy 9. I'm going to look at verses 6 and 7, but God had called a group of people to be his special chosen people, not because they were stronger than any other group. In fact, they were the least. Not because they had more faith. Not because they were smarter. But he chose them and called them out to use them as an example to the world of what his transforming power could be. And his intent was to lead them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, just to shortly show them what his character was about, and then into the land of Canaan. But because of the hardness of their hearts, they would not go. And so Moses, before he dies, after leading this people for 40 years in the wilderness, brings them back to the borders of Canaan. And what does he do? He recounts their history. He takes them on a journey about how God has always been faithful, and it's because of the hard-hearted nature of their forefathers that they could not enter in. Verse 6, therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. That sounds strong-willed if you ask me. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. There is a principle in the Bible that if we don't accept and embrace the history of our forefathers, we are destined to repeat it. We will have the very same root in our heart, and we will go through the very same experience. One of the problems of being a strong-willed child is that I have to learn things the hard way. It could be a whole lot easier. Israel had to learn things the hard way. Ellen White, in talking about this, In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 463, says, Moses faithfully set before them their errors and transgressions of their fathers. They had often felt impatient and rebellious because of their long wandering in the wilderness. But the Lord had not been chargeable with this delay in possessing Canaan. He was more grieved than they because he could not bring them into immediate possession of the promised land and thus display before all nations his mighty power to the deliverance of his people. With their distrust of God, with their pride and unbelief, they had not been prepared to enter Canaan. They would in no way represent that people whose God is the Lord, for they did not bear his character of purity, goodness, and benevolence. 
had their fathers yielded in faith to the direction of God, being governed by his judgments and walking in his ordinances, they would have long before have been settled in Canaan, a prosperous, holy, happy people. Their delay to enter the goodly land dishonored God and detracted from his glory in the sight of surrounding nations. This morning in our devotional, Pastor Lehman brought us to Revelation, the counsel of the true witness. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I counsel you to buy of me gold, white raiment, in ISAB. That is an appeal to the very last church in history. Unless we look back at those Israelites as being stiff-necked, being hard-hearted and full of unbelief, we should be very careful because we now as a people are on our fifth generation of unbelief. The spirit of prophecy makes it clear that if the early Adventists had been true and hadn't gotten fighting over the Sabbath truth and the other doctrines and the law, the law, the law, they would have shortly been in the kingdom as early as the 1850s. This church was never raised up to be a church that passes on generation after generation after generation. This church was called to be a movement that gave a message to the world to prepare them for the transition that's coming to this world. When every support of our world is going to fail, our money system, our food system, all support is going to be cut off, not just for God's people, it's going to fall apart. And God is trying to call a group of people that respond by faith because his economy is a faith-based system. Based on the faith of Jesus, he calls us. So Christ could have come in the 1840s and 50s era. There was a message sent. There was another message sent in the 1880s that culminated in a call that he could have come in the 1890s. Ellen White identified that. I've got quote after quote that says that. For the interest of time, I'm not going to go over that. But Christ could have come except for the hardness of our hearts to respond to his messages. Now, I can prove the first two. I think there's a pattern. If you are called and given special light as a people and you are brought to the very border of the promised land and you turn back, you don't get a second chance. That is reserved for the next generation. You go out and die in the wilderness. You can repent. You can be saved. But there is a special calling for a special people. And when we resisted his Holy Spirit in the 1880s, I believe again a message of revival came back in the 1920s and 30s. Taylor Bunch's Exodus and Type and Antitype was a call to repentance. A.G. Daniels wrote the book Christ and His Righteousness. There was a revival that happened that got rooted out. Revival 
in Reformation and the Adventist church always comes with a message of the righteousness of Christ that culminates in the obedience to God's law, in the faith of Jesus. In preceding it and leading up to it is always a call to repentance. There was a book called 1888 Reexamined in the 1950s and 60s that was also a call to repentance. And there was a huge revival in righteousness by faith that got eclipsed by the Ford movement in errors that brought into our church. But if this hypothesis is correct, that every 40 years there comes back a message of revival, that in the, in the 2000s we should be on track to again see God's calling his people to revival and to reformation. And I believe that I've been seeing that happen. There has been a message of Christ's righteousness and messages about the faith of Jesus that we have begun to understand. Even right here has the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. We are seeing revivals. I believe the very calling up of the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network is God's way of restoring the right arm of the gospel to the health message. That was something that got separated in the tragedy of 1888 when there was not just a rejection of a message, but the rejection of the prophet and the rejection of the health message all combined. Ever since, ministers and physicians and dentists have gone their separate ways. It's time to bring those back. We're seeing revival of our education system. We're seeing young people committing themselves to service, an army of youth. And I believe that we are also beginning to see in the emerging church and other things that are creeping into our church the very beginnings of the omega of apostasy. We actually are living on the very steps of eternity. Ellen White says, do not charge God with the delay in Jesus' coming. It wasn't God's delay that caused the Israelites to wander in the wilderness those 40 years. It was the hardness of their hearts. And as a church, we must confess that our hearts are hard and we need a message of the righteousness of Christ that will restore in us a commandment-keeping people who understand the faith of Jesus. That is a message that will restore that has restored my life and given me hope and confidence in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It will restore families. It will restore your medical practice. I have seen my practice since I've been trying to implement these principles of the faith of Jesus in my practice. I've seen incredible things happen to my patients. I've seen it go from just maybe 10 or 15% of my patients stopping smoking to where maybe more than half do and many more are working on it. They find a new power to make a change because I show them the only source of true change. Lindy and I had the opportunity to participate in the evangelistic series that's going on right now in Dayton, Ohio. Tonight's the very last meeting with John Bradshaw and the It Is Written team. I was able to invite my patients to go to that. I had been wondering, what do I do? What's the next step? I've been praying with my patients. I've been having spiritual conversations, but what is the next step? And it was just amazing to see the receptiveness of those people to say, oh, yeah, if you'll recommend that, we'll go. 
And it's just amazing to be able to be in, in a part of a meeting. We've been doing the health talks every night in that. And to be able to look out in the audience and see many of my patients has just touched my heart. And it makes me realize there's far more that I could do. There is a powerful, there is a huge power that we are just beginning to tap into. When we realize the power of the gospel united with the power of the health message, and it's the same message that is going to transform our church and produce a people who have the faith of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. All of us, to a degree, are strong-willed. God doesn't just come in and say, do it my way or the highway. He doesn't threaten us that, you know what, there's a lake of fire out there if you don't do it my way. I don't know why I never saw it growing up, but the opening chapter of The Desire of Ages, in fact, all through those books, I now see them totally different than I've ever seen them before. But the appeal in the opening chapter of The Desire of Ages, only by love, is love awakened. It's God who has been pursuing me, chasing me down, and will not let me go to the point that I finally surrender my will to his. And as a group of physicians and dentists, it's time that we do the same. And as Seventh-day Adventists, there's a world out there waiting to hear that message. Let's bow our heads. Well, our Father in heaven, I thank you that you did not give up on me when I had given up on myself. Thank you that you are a God who loves each of us more than you love even yourself. That kind of love just blows my mind. But Father, may we bask in that love long enough to become secure in our own salvation and then realize that there is a world out there that needs to hear the same message. Give us wisdom. Give us your power. And may we truly experience repentance and revival and reformation, I pray in Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.